You're listening to the Exegy Podcast by Gary Livengood. This is Lesson 14 in our series on 2 Peter. Hello and welcome to this session of the Exegete. We are continuing our study in 2 Peter, finished on in our last session, finished 2 Peter chapter 2, an incredible uh, chapter about uh, Peter addressing false teachers and false prophets and and what a what a danger they are to churches and, and believers. We move on now to chapter 3, and uh, Peter still has some things to say about false teachers, uh, but he also now begins to address matters concerning the day of the Lord. Uh, the day of the Lord is about events surrounding the second coming of Jesus. It's not just Jesus' second coming, but whenever the scripture talks about the day of the Lord, it's the second coming and things, events, days surrounding uh, that marvelous event, which we look forward to and wait for, uh, and probably, I hope, say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, he addresses this, this matter because, uh, possibly because of the false teachers of chapter 2 were giving, not surprisingly, false prophecy. We see that going on in our, uh, in our era all the time. Uh, people, whether they call themselves prophets or not, telling us what the future is going to be like and not speaking uh, the word of truth from the word of God. But uh, Peter wants us to understand, and really the, the whole, especially maybe the New Testament, really is very careful to tell us the importance of knowing about the day of the Lord, the, the end times events so uh, as Peter addresses this, of course, we will too here in chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2 says this, Paul writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul, very concerned here that they understand that the day of the Lord has not come. Um, Paul is going to suggest some things, or actually we're going to look at some things to show that it can't have come, certainly by the time that that Paul uh, wrote this letter. And I believe the scripture teaches the second coming, the day of the Lord still has not happened. So there was probably some false teaching um, in Thessalonica about the second coming. And Paul lists several things that must happen first before the second coming can occur. Now, we're gonna, not going to go through that passage in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But I just do want to mention uh, first uh, the abomination of desolation, which he, he mentions in verse 4 of that chapter, must happen before the Lord can, can return. Listen, that has not happened. Jesus also mentions this in Matthew 24, 15, in the great Olivet Discourse, and when he talks about end times. And clearly, as clear as can be, Jesus says that before he returns, and he he describes his return in uh, verses 29 to 31 of that chapter, before he returns, the abomination of desolation must happen. Now, I mention this, not only in regard to the issue in Second Thessalonians, and uh, and 
Second Peter 3 as well. I mention this because one of the doctrines, a false doctrine in the church called preterism, that comes from a Latin word that means history or past. Preterism generally says that most or all Bible prophecy is fulfilled, has already been fulfilled, especially the, uh, the doctrine of full preterism. Like any other doctrine, there are different nuances on preterism. But full preterism seems to say that Jesus has already returned. Uh, preterists tend to say that he returned in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed by uh, Rome and under uh, the great general Titus. Uh, preterism, I believe by definition, must also be amillennial, amillennial, that is, preterists don't believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth from Jerusalem. Uh, and, I, and I really believe that there's, there's one knockdown verse that, that tells us that preterism is wrong. And that actually is in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. We'll get that, that more in a future session. But 1 Peter 3.10 says this, But the day of the Lord, and of course the day of the Lord again encompasses the second coming, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, has anybody seen that happen? Can you say in any point in history that the heavens passed away with a roar and the elements burned up with intense heat and so forth? Anybody seen that, ever heard that happening? No, of course not. That is, that is describing what it will be like on earth at the day of the Lord. And that has not happened, ever. So I would say 1 Peter 3.10 alone should put an end to the wrong doctrine of preterism. But I would also add to that Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Please note that uh, Revelation was written by John, John the Revelator, uh, the Apostle John, in 90 AD, which uh, by my reckoning is 20 years after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And in John 1, 1, he says, uh, quote, the things which much must shortly take place, unquote. So he doesn't say the things which took place 20 years ago. He, say, he says these things are going to happen in the future. So all these matters of Revelation, and of course the second coming is described in Revelation, I think multiple times. And he says, he says these are the things that, which will take place. Again, not that took place 20 years ago. Um, by the way, the term shortly there, as John uses it in Revelation 1.1, Greek term is takos, takos, and it does mean shortly, but not in the sense of, of uh, it's going to happen any minute. It doesn't mean that. It means when it happens, when these events of the day of the Lord happen, they will happen quickly or speedily. And that's the sense of short there, not in the sense of any minute or almost right now. Um, and it also uh, doesn't mean that the events themselves, once they're taking place, uh, will happen over a period of centuries, but they will happen quickly. So let me read to you now uh, verses uh, 1 through 7 of Second Peter chapter 3. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder 
that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was being destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are, reserved, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So verse 1 here, chapter 3, Peter acknowledges here, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you. I wrote you a previous letter, and apparently it's the same group of people that he wrote the first letter to. In 1 Peter 1, 1, he tells us who that is. He said, of believers who are scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this was a letter that was to be circulated among a number of churches in that area. In fact, that area uh, in the first century was between the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea, a pretty sizable area. And P Peter commends them and says that you have a sincere or a pure mind. Good for them. They have a sincere or pure mind. That's a very commendable thing. Um, and I think some of that is maybe not so much pure in the sense that we think of it not being consumed with sensuality or but they just have a pure desire. Um, they have a, a deep, sincere desire for the Lord. And again, good for them. That is very commendable. But in verse 2, he says, you should remember, or uh, translated as you should be mindful of this. So one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that many believers may have a sincere or pure mind or a sincere faith, which is great, but they may not be mindful. Uh, mimnisco is the Greek word. They may not be fully mindful of all the things that need to be, they need to be aware of and the importance of, uh, of translating life through the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul, Paul uses that word mimnisco about having the mind of Christ being mindful of Christ in all things. So hence, we just saw that teaching in, in chapter 2 from Peter about the false teachers. And we saw disturbingly believers, in, apparently in these areas geographically that he was writing to, were being taken in. They were being fooled by false prophets. So he says, you need to be mindful. In Ephesians 4.14, Peter says, we are no longer to be children. Uh, sometimes I hear um, people, Christians say, you know, hey, we're supposed to be like children. We're supposed to be like children. And I, I get that, I think. Um, I understand we come, you know, in faith to Jesus, uh, the faith of a child, which is pure and all that. But in other places in the scripture, it says, I don't want you to be children. I want you to grow up. Grow up in the faith, grow up in knowledge, grow up in wisdom, grow up in understanding. Shall I go on? Ephesians 4.14 is one of those passages in which Paul says, we are no longer to be children. And again, related to this, of being, this matter of being mindful, uh, the scripture is so clear 
uh, on in in passages like Romans 12 to renew your mind. Uh, Philippians 4:8, of course, a great passage. Many many Christians have this memorized. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence. And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on those things, or think on those things. And then Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Uh, commentator Eldon Furman, I thought this was a great statement related to this matter. I want to read you this quote. Furman says, quote, No state of grace, this side of heaven, exempts men from the need of repeated reminders of the truth of the Christian message. And all of this becomes the more urgent in light of Christ's imminent return. I love that. We need repeated reminders of the truth of the Christian message. So, Sometimes we tend to hear the same things over and over again. Well, there's a reason for that. We need to hear them over and over again. So, two things to mention here that we need to be uh, mindful of from Peter here in this uh, verse 2. Two things to be mindful of, or two things that we should work hard to remember. First of all, um, he says, "Word the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Now, that is a clear, clear reference to the Old Testament. Um, in fact, you might recall in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, we looked at this a number of sessions ago, said this. Peter says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit from God. So, that is clearly Peter talking about both in, in chapter 1 and here, words spoken beforehand by the Holy Prophet, talking about the Old Testament. Now look, I am really tired of, he of hearing pastors, I, I think they mean well, respected pastors, pastors of with a lot of influence, attacking the validity and necessity of the Old Testament. Listen, those guys are wrong. People who attack the Old Testament as though it's not really that important, not really that necessary for Christians. They are wrong. And I'll go with Peter here, because the prophecy he's spoken, spoken of beforehand has to be Old Testament prophecy. And he wants you to know that. In fact, he'd even said, it's not by human will, it's by men moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. The Old Testament is vital. And uh, if your pastor in your church is saying you don't need the Old Testament, leave the church. The second thing Peter says here, um, he talks about the commands of Jesus himself. The commands of Jesus. Uh, the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Well, that is clearly the teaching of the New Testament. Um, Jesus obviously had gone to be with his father at the ascension, and now uh, his commandments are being spoken by the apostles to the churches. So I love the fact that Peter here emphasizes the importance of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Listen, the whole counsel of God. Don't listen to anyone 
who says you don't need the whole counsel of God. They're wrong. So everything, everything should be understand, understood in this life through the lens of Scripture. Uh, my son Joel uh, and his wife Megan were in Europe recently, and Joel took hundreds of pictures in, in France and in Netherlands and in Italy and so forth. And all of those pictures are discernible, are visible, all made sense because of the camera lens. If the camera lens was not focused right, he could look at those pictures and wonder, what in the world am I looking at here? Well, the same thing can be said about Scripture. Scripture always gives the perfect focus. How do we know that? It's God's Word. Can God make a mistake? No. Will God misinterpret anything? No. Scripture always gives perfect focus. For what? Well, for things like decision-making, relational health, proper behavior, uh, how you handle your finances. Yes, the Scripture addresses that very powerfully. For matters like character issues, um, for things like healthy entertainment, how to develop a happy home. He also gives us uh, the perfect focus about future events and so forth. All matters of life are interpreted through or should be interpreted through the lens of the scriptures. And by the way, believers who don't do this often pay a heavy price, uh, deep consequences for going their own way in the face of the scriptures, which tells them something otherwise. Uh, a number of years ago, my wife Carol, who's a, just a wonderfully uh, godly woman, faithful servant of the Lord, prayer warrior, um, just an amazing woman, uh, another lady came to her for some counsel. And the counsel, the counsel that this lady asked for had to do with uh, the husband and wife, wife relationship. And Carol, being a spirit-filled woman and knowing the scriptures so well, she talked about, well, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 talk about the wife submitting to the husband's headship. It's a biblical idea. It couldn't be any clearer. And Carol, who uh, tends to speak the truth um, and exhort people, um, she didn't tell this woman what the woman wanted to hear. The woman didn't want to hear that. Well, unfortunately, uh, the woman didn't listen, didn't take the counsel of my wife, did not obey the, the scripture, and later um, went in through a terrible, terrible problem in her marriage because of her behavior, and marriage about fell apart. Thank God it was, it, ultimately they reconciled. Uh, but, you know, why did that happen? She didn't focus through the lens of scripture. And to her credit, by the way, the rest of the story, to her credit, she later came back and apologized to Carol and said, I should have listened to you. And indeed she should have, as we should. So, friends, be mindful of the whole counsel of God. We can, we can avoid so much trouble in our lives and we can bring on so many wonderful blessings. And now verse 3, Peter here begins to address this the, the day of the Lord. There's three groups or three matters he addresses through the rest of this book, through the end of chapter 3. In verses 3 to 7, it's the, and I'll give you three D words, the deniers. Some denied his return. Uh, in verses 8 and 9, second D word, the delay. 
Some wondered legitimately about the delay of his turn. That's about, about the delay of Christ's return. It's okay. It's a legitimate question. And thirdly, a third D word, uh, the demands of his, of, his word, of his return. That is verses 10 through 18. And some people had misunderstood this very real demand, uh, not a suggestion, demand for a holy life because of his return. Jesus isn't coming back to some sort of void on earth. Um, his return should powerfully affect how we live. So again, the first one, verses 3 to 7, some denied the return of the Lord. And Peter says, know this, gnosko, strong word, know this, recognize, come to this understanding, you Christians, and, and, and this applies, of course, to you and I today, mockers will come. It's inevitable. We shouldn't be surprised that mockers will come. And in fact, mockers are already here all over our culture about the return of Christ. I'm not talking about Christians with different views about when and those kind of things. I'm talking about people who just say, well, he's not going to come back. But it's fascinating and so instructive when Peter tells us what is motivating this mocking. Notice he says there in verse 3, following after their own lusts. And there it is, yet again, people being motivated by lust, and they end up as heretics, false teachers, and far, far away from Christ. Lusts here is epithumia, the Greek word. It includes all types of coveting. Uh, it does include sexual lust and, and other types of lust, but not just those. All types of coveting, lusting after all sorts of things, including uh, sexual lust. Interestingly enough, you may recall there were re repeated reference in chapter 2 to lust motivating false teachers. And a lot of that, as we saw, was sexual lust. Not all of it, but a lot of it was sexual lust there. In fact, you might recall quotes from uh, the quote from Aldous Huxley, um, who... <laughs> who made no bones about uh, why he doubted and, and dismissed God. Uh, he wanted to uh, indulge his lusts. So what's the point? Mockers don't want Jesus to return. They don't want him to return. They mock him and follow after their own lusts, hoping that they continue can continue in their own lusts and never have to be answer and never have to answer to God. They don't want to be culpable. I like uh, J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of this verse he says about these people whose only guide in life is what they want for themselves. Uh, that's not the way to live, friends. Certainly not the way to live uh, a life that represents Jesus Christ, uh, seeking only what they want for themselves. Here's what Paul says in Romans 8, 5 to 8 about this matter. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul's pretty clear there about uh, a life motivated by selfishness. It's not pleasing to God, and it ultimately ends in death. 
and not just physical death. Again, so whether this is, uh, you know, philosophers or uh, secular scientists or uh, agnostic learned professors or political pundits or media, media culturists or anybody in any place, these people, when they mock the return of Christ, are often motivated not not by facts and reason. No matter what they may want you to think, no matter how, how many big words they use and high-minded philosophy and esoteric thinking they may use, uh, they are often not motivated by facts and reason and truth, but motivated by personal agendas and the lusts of the flesh. I gotta, I gotta tell you, I recently heard uh, many of you know the name of Richard Dawkins, uh, a, an atheist and one of the leading evolutionists, evolutionists and materialists and rationalists in the world, said many decent people don't need religion to know how to behave. That's a quote. Many decent people don't need religion to know how to behave. Well, that is quite, ironically enough, quite a leap of faith, friends. Listen to this. The very idea of decency, if Richard Dawkins is going to use that word decent, he has no right to use that word, being an atheist. Decency precludes an knowledge of an immutable moral law. It does. If you use the word decency and reject God, the word decency means nothing. You cannot rightfully and reasonably use the word decency, applying it to some sort of lifestyle, and then say, well, there's no God. Because if there's no God, there's no good. And if there's no good, there's no decency. You make up your own decency. So it's an incredible self-contradicting thing that Richard Dawkins says there. And, and as I mentioned, quite a leap of faith for him. So verse 4 now, their question where is the promise of his coming? It is a, is a denial of a core doctrine. The second coming of Christ is a core doctrine, what I like to call a non-negotiable. There's not many of those. There's not a lot of non-negotiables in the Christian faith, in the scriptures, but there are some, and they are absolutely essential. And for the non-negotiables, for the core doctrines, uh, people who disagree or reject those are heretics. That's how you define heresy or a heretic. You deny the truth of one of the core doctrines of Christianity. And again, there's not, they usually have to do with, there's not a lot of them. They usually have to do with the Trinity, the nature of God, and, and certainly the nature and work of Jesus Christ. And those kind of make up the real, and, and of course, salvation by faith alone. Those make up the, the core doctrines, the non-negotiables. When many years ago, when I was only about, when I was a teenager, my family was attending a church in a denomination that was going very liberal very quickly. And uh, I left the church when I was about 18 or 19. I couldn't take it anymore. And my parents stayed on for a while. But the pastor at the church did a series on the book of Revelation. Why he did this, I don't know, because he certainly didn't believe anything specific in Revelation. But he actually said, by the way, he did the entire book of Revelation in three sermons. I couldn't get through three verses in three sermons. But in any case, um, he said from the pulpit, uh, there is no second coming of Christ. He rejected the second coming of Christ from the pulpit of all things. He was a heretic. And uh, thankfully, um, 
kind of glad he actually did that because that was the final straw for my parents. They left that church and and uh, began attending a wonderful Christ-centered, Bible-centered church. But that's a statement of heresy. There is no second coming. So their question of these mockers, where's the promise of his coming, shows them to be heretics. The basis of their denial is, this is the basis of their denial, everything is like it's always been. Everything continues going on. That's what Peter says here in verse 4. They say, well, everything's the same, it's always been, so where's the promise? Where's the second coming thing? Now, in verse 5, Peter addresses the wrong assumption here by the deniers. The fundamental idea that all continues just as it was from the beginning is wrong. And Peter uses a couple of points here uh, to refute this. One is a little subtle, and the other point is not subtle at all. First of all, for the purposes of this argument, I really like the way the NIV says this verse. They, that is the mockers, they will say, where is this coming, he promised. Now, I like that because we need to understand that Jesus himself promised to return. Jesus himself promised this. He described his own return in Matthew 24, 29 to 31. These are the words of Jesus about his own second coming. I want to read those three verses. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So those are the words of Jesus himself in his promise to return a second time. And listen, there's no plan B. Uh, his followers didn't invent this when he mistakenly died on the cross. Uh, no, not at all. This was his plan from the beginning, and uh, he had told us about it in advance. So uh, you, can, you can say that there's no second coming, but if you do, understand that what you're doing is calling, is, is calling Jesus a liar. Peter quotes Jesus. Jesus himself said he would return. We see that in Matthew 24 and other passages. And if he doesn't return, that means he lied to us. That means he lied to us. Titus 1-2 says this, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. God cannot lie. It's impossible. Jesus is God. Jesus cannot lie. In fact, Jesus not only can't lie, he can't be wrong about anything either. He can't be confused about anything. It's impossible. So Jesus says, I will return. And if you deny that, Where's the promise of his coming? Coming, You're, in essence, calling Jesus a liar. We should also add here, uh, Acts 1.11, after the, uh, the men of Galilee, the apostles who are there, see Jesus taken up in a cloud. The angel said, uh, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So we have the testimony there of angels as well. 
um, that Jesus would indeed return. So uh, that's the first statement. And that's a little subtle because uh, Jesus said he would return and Jesus cannot lie. The second thing, uh, Peter's second point to refute the deniers, when the deniers say these things, and that means when they say, well, everything continues as it was from the beginning, they are actually ignoring historical truth. They are ignoring actual facts of history. Everything has not gone on as it always has. Um, first of all, let me mention three general purposes of the second coming. These are general purposes. Number one, to finalize salvation for believers, including the Jews, as we see in Zechariah 12 and 13. Uh, we know that when Jesus returns, that will finalize salvation for Gentiles and for Jews. I don't subscribe to supersessionism at all. Uh, God is dealing with Jews now again with the nation of Israel and will continue to do so and will save many, many Jewish people at the moment he actually returns. So purpose number one, second coming, finalize salvation for all believers, Jews and Gentiles alike. Second reason, second purpose, to set up his kingdom rule on earth from Jerusalem. Now I'm a millennialist. And uh, I believe that there's a thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth, and he will reign from Jerusalem. Uh, good, godly people don't agree with that, so that's not a, uh, a non-negotiable. Uh, you're not a heretic if you don't believe in the millennial reign of Christ. Please understand that. Uh, but Revelation 19.15 says, From his mouth, that's mouth of Jesus, as John sees this vision, comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of, of the Almighty, of God the Almighty. So one of the reasons Jesus returns is to set up his kingdom rule on earth. And the third reason, and we see it there in that verse as well, for judgment and for wrath. Uh, God will come, Jesus will come in judgment. He comes for the salvation of his people, but he also comes in judgment and wrath upon the lost. Now, bottom line, this is exactly what the deniers want to and hope to deny. They want to avoid this. And by saying that, hey, where's the promise of his coming? Everything's the same. Nothing ever changes. They ignore the reality of historical events in which everything did change such as, and, and Peter seems to make an allusion to this, the flood, the judgment of flood, the flood of judgment in Genesis 6. Uh, no, the world does not go unchanged. God has and God will interfere, as it were, with human history. Now, he's allowed to do that. It's his world. But just one example uh, would be the, uh, the flood in which God not only uh, judged and killed off every human on the face of the earth except Noah and seven people with him and of course saved all the animals or saved all the species uh, that was that was uh, in and of itself a pretty incredible change but it seems pretty safe to say that the world itself geographically was massively changed during during and after the flood uh, the continents probably did not exist before the flood like they do now. So there was tremendous change uh, through, the, through that judgment, the flood. Also, Peter could have mentioned other events. He could have mentioned, for example, the Tower of Babel, um, the, in Genesis 11, the huge 
massive change in the human experience. Now, listen, friends, to this day, this day, uh, probably around 4,200 years ago, this Tower of Babel event happened. To this day, humanity still uh, reaps from that event in, in Genesis 11 that God did not want them to do. They did anyway. And so in the, at the Tower of Babel and his judgment, he, he confused the tongues of people. So uh, that was another incredible change in human history and the human experience. So again, the world does not go on as it always has. Uh, and there's other things we could mention, or Peter could have mentioned, the process of God raising up nations to, to use them as judge, as judgment on uh, his own people and other nations as well. In the Old Testament, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Roman, Rome are all clear examples of God's intervention in human affairs and to say he does not allow things just to simply go on as they've always been. So these people don't see this. They don't acknowledge it. But again, there's a reason that they don't. They don't want Christ to return. And so if they deny that, and if they say, well, everything's always been this way, it always will be, they hope by those words that it means trying to convince themselves that they're not going to have to answer to God. However, they will. Next time we get together, we will continue on in verse 6 in chapter 3. And I appreciate you listening. Thank you so very much for joining me in this lesson. And I hope that you'll stay on me as we get near the end of Second Peter. God bless you and thank you.